Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast, where you learn about advanced wealth building strategies from real estate investing to creating massive ROI and secure retirement profits. So pour yourself a cup of coffee, grab a notepad, and lean in. Welcome to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. I'm the Big Mike. Mike Zlatnik. And today it is my pleasure and a privilege to welcome back. Well, welcome for the first time. (laughs) (laughs) Another time, the second time would be welcome back. But for today, it's just welcome for the first time. Brandon Cobb. Uh, Hi, Brandon. Hey, Michael. How are you doing? Honored to be on. Appreciate you having me. Uh, Thanks for coming on the podcast. Uh, Brandon hails from Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, and he's a CEO of HBG Capital, expert real estate consultant and investor. And he's been featured on REI Wealth Magazine and Forbes. And he has some actionable advice uh, how uh, real estate investing can create uh, passive income. He's got some really uh, also some great ideas on how to do uh, due diligence for a passive investor. So thank you again for coming on the podcast. Before we jump into the, the depth of, of technical discussion, tell us a little bit about Brandon, uh, you, your family, where you live, just a little bit about you. Yeah, so been in Nashville for roughly seven years. My background, medical device sales rep turned real estate developer. I like to joke that if you'd asked me seven years ago what I would be doing today, right at this moment, I would have bet every dime in my bank account that I would not be building houses. So that's what I love about life. It has all these twists and turns that it throws at you. It's an exciting experience. So I went from selling medical devices to now building neighborhoods. I live in a little suburb called Mount Juliet, about 30 minutes east of Nashville. And man, for fun, I like cooking really good steaks, smoking barbecue. And I've got this little, I work out a whole lot. I'm a, I'm a workout junkie. I signed up to this, this seal fit Kokoro thing that a lot of people think I'm nuts for, but uh, I'm excited about it. Oh, that's awesome. That's, that's a great, <laughs> it's a great personal development. Um, so I, I do know a number of folks who love great workouts and I need to do a better job at that myself, but uh, certainly admire that. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about, um, what, what, what is a typical day in the life of a real estate developer or a single family residential? And what kind of projects you're working on right now? Just give us a little bit of color. What are you developing today? Is this high end, middle end, affordable range, built to rent, built to sell to the first time home buyers? Just give us a little bit about uh, what, what you're doing today. Yeah, so we are very against doing high-end products. Um, What we do is we pivot investor capital into real estate products that are designed to be insulated against market volatility. And the way we do that's really unique. Right now, we see the opportunity in affordable single-family new construction. So not to be confused with government housing or low-income housing or Section 8, we're talking about the most undersupplied, highest-demand real estate product in the country right now, First-time home buyers need something that they can afford to move into, right? And so that's what we focus on. So we've got 40, roughly 46 townhomes that are going up. We've got another you know, 20, 30 single-family homes going up, all based in Nashville or the tertiary markets within 30, 40 minutes of downtown. Typical day in the life of me, I know where to stay in my lane. So I'm really good at two things. One is finding strategic partners to help keep things on track. So uh, I call everyone who we bring into the company a strategic partner. Nobody works for me. You work with me. So identifying those who 
people are going to be able to move the needle forward. So I'm going out there. I'm constantly raising capital. I'm looking for great lender partners. I'm looking for the right people to bring into the business. I'm looking for people who can help manage our social media and marketing campaigns. Every single day, I'm just identifying the gaps in the business and making sure that the battleship is steered in that direction. So I'm a big EOS and traction fan. So we've got rocks designed around everybody's roles here at the company. And it's my job to make sure that everybody's on track. They're getting measured and they're being rewarded uh, for all the work that they're doing. So basically, I'm part janitor and part dream builder is kind of what I, I joke on all my email chains. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, certainly love EOS. We, we, we do EOS as well. It's, it's a great operating system for uh, businesses and uh, wearing mul multiple hats. I know the drill. So it's the yeah. same same thing for us. Uh, sometimes you you are the janitor. Sometimes you are the visionary. So you you have to do all of the above. That's great. So let's just talk a little bit about single family residential uh, first time home buyer product. What is the average selling price of what you built? Four hundred thousand and less. So it could go. We got some townhomes being built for two hundred and fifty thousand, and we got some single family homes that are you know, twenty two hundred square feet going for you know three hundred and eighty five. Sometimes pushing four hundred. Now we can kind of get over that if we're in like the downtown core, right, where things are a little bit more expensive, where appreciation's a little bit more dramatic. But most of our products are designed where if you've got a you know a mom and dad and a family whose combined income is six figures you know they, they should be able to afford a product that's four hundred thousand or less that's what we're really going for yeah makes total sense it's funny how these ratios between the income and the prices change with uh interest rates changing mm -hmm. uh obviously rates are still historically very very low but they're rapidly rising and uh, what are you seeing from the affordability perspective? I know it's the most affordable part of the market, um, but have you thought a little bit about, obviously in the last 60 days, the rates moved up so much that a payment factor has gone up all, quite a bit. So what used to be, I don't know, $4,000 a month payment just for sake of the discussion can now be uh, five and a half, 6,000 rep. Very rapidly, the, the change has taken place. How is it gonna impact uh, the product that you're building? So the reality is with demand and the current mortgage service of our products, not that much. Now, if you get some astronomical increases in, in interest rates and inflation continues to get way whack out of hand, obviously that's going to be a factor. But that's one of the reasons why we're not in these homes where the mortgage is $4,000 a month, right? You know, average mortgage for our homes range anywhere between 1100, maybe all the way up to, you know, $2,000 a home. So when you get a couple percentage increases in the interest rate, you're, you know, you're only, only talking about maybe a couple hundred dollars a month increased, right? So it's not dramatic, especially for the pocketbook of the people that we're servicing. Now the demands, the other factor in there, we're so underbuilt. What, 2008, 9, 10, and 11 did when all the builders just shut down and inventory just froze, we still haven't caught up to that. And COVID just further exasperated the problem with all the suppliers shutting off, everyone expecting another 08, 09 again, and, and it didn't happen. It was just a springboard. So we are so many years away from catching up to the supply. And I'm specifically talking about our, our, our niche product that we've just got a phenomenal runway. Um, you're going to have a lot of volatility in the future. Nobody really knows what's going to happen with inflation and, you know, the war in Ukraine and the supply chain, all these different variables. But the reality is if you can create products with a lot of equity, with a huge market and a very low supply, 
then you can fairly assume you're going to have some insulation for that product type. And that's what we're building into everything. Yeah, that makes total sense. Uh, in general, I, I happen to agree with you. There's this there's a lot of discussions now with rising interest rates. Are we going to see substantial slowdown in the real estate market? And nobody knows for sure. Uh, but given that this is the most affordable product on the market and the demand far uh, outpaces the supply, it's difficult to see how um, the the price could, could soften up. Maybe the growth will slow down. So the last two years of COVID, the, the price growth has been just phenomenal for all real estate. Probably not going to see as much, um, but it just it's hard to see how it could reverse the direction, even if the interest rates rise some. So uh, let's continue kind of exploring a little bit. So um, how do you, you know, one of the, one of the questions uh, that um, I wanted to ask is um, how do folks do due diligence um, as a passive investor if, in investing in the space? And just, just, just curious, what kind of investing investment options do you offer folks that work with you? Yeah, as far as options that we offer, we've got a fund set up. All options are built before we actually fund. So people actually get to see, touch, and feel. We're not one of these funds that say, hey, you know, invest and we're just going to, you know, build. They actually get to see, touch, and feel it before we do it. So we've got a fund that's set up. Um, you know, we've got different syndications that we do for different developments. So there really is an option just for every every type of investor profile. We work with accredited investors, work with non-accredited investors, everybody. There's a little more hoops to jump through with the non-accredited, but we try to work with everybody. As far as, and what was your first question? I'm sorry. The, the, the first question was, um, how do... How do they do due diligence? Yeah. Yeah. So this is a great question. And there's there's a quite a bit that goes into it. I'm going to break it down and keep it simple. One, if people want to do a deep dive, we have a free ebook on our website called, one, called 100 Questions Passive Investors Should Be Asking Before Investing. You can go to hbgcapital.net and grab that book. That's harrybobgarycapital.net. It's free. And that's going to give you everything you need to know, especially if you're new to jumping into a niche you haven't done before. The best thing you can do is arm yourself with the best questions, because if you don't know what questions to ask, you can't uncover the things that you need to know. That book is designed to get you up to speed and make sure you don't make a bad investment. But as far as due diligence, there's two things that go into a due diligence process, the deal and the operator. That's the reality of the situation. So no matter what you're vetting, one is going to be the operator. So I see a lot of people make mistakes where a lot of the times, especially in these multifamily deals where you've got a sponsor and you've got an operator, the sponsor is the one raising the money. They're the one that's the face and great sponsors got a good track record, but nobody does any due diligence on the operator. It seems like, like who's the construction company or who's the property management company that's going to be managing that thing? Because I mean, they're just as dependent on the success of the project if the sponsor. And I would argue that they're more dependent uh, than the sponsor on the success of that project because they're the one actually executing the pro forma. So making sure you do diligence. So how do you do that, right? What do you look at? So history and track record. Look for actual deals. Get the addresses. Ask to look at all the past deals. What was the exit? What was the IRR that they performed on, right? Make sure you get a background check on everybody. It's the most basic thing, common knowledge, but nobody does. Ask them to do a background check. Get the information you need from the sponsor and the operator in order to do that. So that's really crucial. I'm a big gut check person. So make sure you have multiple calls with this person. If you can, if you're, you know, if this is a size amount of, sizable amount of money that you're thinking about investing, maybe spend the money to fly in town and actually check out the deal. Maybe 
choose to meet with the operator. If you can't do multiple virtual visits, really get a gut check. And again, use those questions in the 100 questions passive investors should be asking ebook. Literally download it and just quiz them on all those. I promise if you read that book and use those questions to vet the sponsor and the operator, you'll have a much better idea of whether or not you should be jumping into that deal. So the next thing is the deal itself. You can have the best operator and sponsor in the world, but if the deal sucks, then don't do the deal and vice versa, right? So the number one thing you need to be looking at is preservation of capital. So how is this deal going to protect my capital? Returns don't matter if you're not going to be able to get your money out, right? So what's the exit strategy of this deal, right? What is the liquidity event and how likely is that to happen? The second is how much would the market have to tank in order for my capital to be affected? And all of our pro formas, we break that down, right? And we underwrite everything roughly like a 66, 67% loan to value. So we got a nice big buffer built into our deals on top of the other layers of insulation that we've, we've built into the deals. So you want to make sure you have a nice, nice runway. Every single deal we do is designed to take a hit. Every single deal we underwrite, we're like, all right, you know, can we take a 25, 30% hit in the market and still look good? And if that answer is yes, then we do that deal. So as a passive investor, you want to make sure you're looking at this deal and how much equity is built into that deal. And you want to verify everything. So if the sponsor is giving you comps, comparables on what the exit is, look those up. Actually do your own research. Make sure that every piece of information in the pro forma that they're giving you is actually accurate. And that's if you if you look at those two things, you do your due diligence on the sponsor and operator and you look at the deal, you look at the equity, you make sure everything's realistic, then you're going to feel much better before placing your money with somebody. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, a lot of great nuggets. Um, and uh, I, I'll certainly <laughs> give a little credit to your book. I, I do have a book out with top 10 questions to ask. You have 100 questions to ask before investing in a fund or syndication. So it's, it, it's a very cool subject. So I certainly um, uh, appreciate that. And I think it makes total sense that folks should arm themselves with good questions. 100 is probably a little bit on a heavy side, but certainly uh, top 10, 20 may be a great discussion. Yeah, and then on the due diligence side, it, it's, it's hard. Honestly, as much as you're trying to make it easy, all the things you mentioned take, take time and effort and energy to do. Um, mm -hmm. And um, yeah, I'll just add this color can look at the deal before you can look at the operator. Um, and in, in my methodology, ideally you want the operator and the sponsor to be the same. Mm -hmm. um, you're right, quite often it becomes a partnership of um, co-sponsor and, and, and an operator. The, the, but the, the, the essence of the, the exercise is to see who is actually the operator, who's gonna run the construction, who's gonna manage the project. They can have other other partners who raise capital and do other functions, uh, but you're absolutely right. Uh, and we've done this due diligence coming out and meeting the actual sponsor operator. Uh, that's the most important thing, ability to execute, especially in this crazy world of supply chain mm -hmm. problems. Getting, um, by the way, have you had problems getting uh, the final 10% done? It's one of the biggest risks of the single family development is your 90% done, 95% done, then you can't get the appliances. You can't get some, some other final stuff. You can't get the windows. So uh, how, how are you mitigating that risk um, when your construction project is probably risk number one. 
because you've borrowed the money, you build the, the, the property up all the way to the point where you're very close to be able to finish it. But you got to finish it because you spent a lot of money. And if you don't finish and you're stuck, this is one of the biggest risks. How do you generally mitigate that risk? Yeah, great question. So, you know, to your point, that's why we're vertically integrated. So we are the contractor. We are the GC. You know, we are the sponsor. We do everything from start to finish because we saw there was too much risk and depending on a third party to execute on all of our builds. That aligns the investor's interest with the builders. So what we're doing to mitigate all the supply chain issues is one, we're ordering everything way ahead of time. Windows, great. We're not waiting on them to dry in properties. We're taking uh, boards and we're boarding up all the windows to make sure it's dried in, right? So we're not waiting on those to slow down the project. Appliances, we're buying them way ahead of time, right? Everything that we buy is at the start of the project. And so to help out with cash flow, you know, one of the things we do in the fund is part of the raise is the startup costs for the project. Whereas other builders run into issues where they don't have the capital available to go ahead and buy all these materials up front, lock in their pricing, making sure that their underwriting at the beginning of the project isn't screwed up six months later when they're trying to buy stuff and inflation and all this crap has caused massive increases in everything. We buy just about everything up front or at least lock in contract pricing for it. Um, storing things off site too. So a lot of the windows, you know, we're we're doing these straightforward homes, right? You know, 1,500 to 2,200 square feet. We're using a lot of similar products, a lot of products that there's a lot easy access to. So we can store a lot of these windows, a lot of these supplies in our offsite storage facility and have easy access to them. So those are just a couple of things we're doing to mitigate the supply chain issues and the timelines for our builds. Yeah, makes total sense. Nowadays, you almost have to do this because uh, you may not even get the product later or you pay more for it later. So from that perspective, you're better raising more dollars up front and not relying on um, just-in-time. By the way, the just-in-time concept where you get everything when you need it is a wonderful concept where, where, where supply chain was perfect. Everything was working uh, smoothly. But mm-hmm. when it broke, it broke hard. So you the, the approach of buying everything up front is the only viable approach to mitigate the risk today. I mean, it's not the only, but one of the, you know, most probably the safest approaches. Um, so let's continue. Just talk a little bit about um, so your fund or your syndications. They basically raise the capital for the portion of the deal to construct the asset, and then you look to sell it upon completion. Are you doing some sub developments? Are you doing sort of um, one-off um, single-family houses? So if it's a sub development, do you do a raise for the whole sub development, or do you do uh, more of a uh, raise as you go for new, you know, for new assets, for new uh, houses in a, in a given area? Yeah, great question. So we do a mix of infill spec that's ready to rock and roll and these developments. We're transitioning to doing more land development because we've realized the economy of scale is really important in order for us to scale. We were stuck at 40, 50 projects a year, right? Because we're spread out with all this, this spec and this onesie twosie in the neighborhood. And we figured out that it's just as easy to go talk to one person that you can build two homes on their land as it is to go talk to a person where you can build 50. And so that's what we're doing. Project managers show up to the same piece of land every single day that we're building, you know, 30 plus homes are. And then we just make sure that the areas can handle the absorption rates. So we're, we're diversified where we're building homes in the same area, you know, different local markets where we feel the absorption rates are really, really safe. So we do a mix right now, but we'll more than likely be transitioning to just doing strictly land development. We can build 30 pieces of uh, 30 products on one particular piece of land. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And, and, and pretty much everyone with any kind of economy of scale gravitates to fewer and bigger projects. As much as you can mitigate the risk of a whole bunch of one-offs, uh, but the effort it takes is certainly uh, greater. So uh, back to the due diligence on uh, on the project itself. Um, so your idea is absolutely solid. Investors should come out and they should meet you and they should shake your hand and they should have multiple conversations, but it's hard. It's like most people don't have the time and energy. Uh, and and uh, is there an easier path? Uh, one of the ideas sort of that, that, that I, I like to use uh, is a referral chain. Um, because without referral chain, you have to do everything from scratch and the due diligence of somebody you don't know from uh, cold you know, introduction uh, till the point you're comfortable to invest is, is a long path. Mm-hmm. So the, the alternative to that is some kind of referral chain where um, an investor can, can build confidence by virtue of somebody they know who's invested. And it, th- that's how the world goes around. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you, you know, use this technique or do you uh, advocate any other way for folks to come in and kind of go from cold introduction to a new much faster? Yeah, so referrals are great, but the reality is it's not 100%. Let's see, what's the word I'm looking for here? There can, there can still be bad referrals, right? Even from people you know, like, and trust. So my opinion on this is this isn't something you want to hit the easy button on. I mean, you should be vetting people that you want a long-term relationship with, right? If this is just a one-off deal and this, this person isn't going to be supplying future deals that they can pivot you into and, and keep your capital busy and aren't aligned with the objectives that you want, you shouldn't be doing that deal, right? So a lot of the front-end work is... It's a lot, right? We're asking a lot to do all this due diligence and meet the person and make sure that you're comfortable with them. But you really only need to do it one time, right? Now, you should still look at every single deal that they send you and all that. But as far as vetting, you know, this person is sponsored, this operator, this person you're going to be entrusting probably hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not more money to, you need to do a lot of work on the front end to make sure that it's a good fit, that they're aligned with your interest and that, you know, they've got the background and experience to be able to execute on this. So there's, there's no easy button. Um, referrals are great, but it's not the end all be all. I still highly re- recommend that people take the, the additional amount of time, meet with them multiple times. If you can't do it in person, do the virtual calls again, ask them all those questions. If you ask them all the questions on that ebook, like they're going to know their stuff if they can answer those questions. And if they can't, there's a lot of hesitations. Well, then that should tell you something. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Uh, the, the objective is to build a relationship for multiple deals, not a single deal. And uh, Absolutely. Yeah, we've been in this boat for a long time. We, we happen to develop long-term uh, relationships and many strong ones, and you generally try to maintain them and, and keep them. And uh, you still have to monitor it. You know what's really interesting is that sometimes good people go bad. And I wanted to stress this point that uh, as much as um, things have, have run well in the past, when um, folks run into troubles. And I've seen that with uh, fix and flippers. I've seen it with developers. They overstretch, they bite more than they can chew. They run into a problem project and the real colors come out. They can't solve the problems. They, they, they are, you know. So it, this is something that uh, any investor should consider. Um, uh, is this project 
bigger than their old past projects and they have the ability to manage problems. This is probably one of the most um, important skills is ability to manage problems rather than uh, when everything is great, it's easy. It's a smooth sailing. But when, when the waters get a little, little bumpy, that, that's when uh, uh, the experience track record and the core values come out. So um, how do folks get a hold of you? Like if they wanted to, to get your ebook, uh, I think you mentioned this before, but once again, uh, what's the best way to get a hold of you, ask you questions and maybe get to know you? Yeah, so we, we've got a ton of free content on our website. You can go to hpgcapital.net. That's harrybobgarycapital.net. Uh, you can send us an email, info at hbgcapital.net. Um, we've got a calendar on our website. Feel free to schedule an introductory call. We're just looking to get to know you, learn more about you, see if we're a fit for you. Um, you know, and I just I love doing conversations like this. So you know, if you want to get on and talk real estate, uh, would love to learn more about you. That's great. Um, any sort of final thoughts, any good book uh, suggestion? Um, and then kind of uh, besides the, the, the big answer that you that you gave, that you're building a probably most affordable product out there. Um, any thoughts, you know, we're going to potentially, we're still hot, the economy is still running, but if recession hits, should folks shut down and slow down the investing or should they... Um, continue to invest because sitting on cash is like the worst thing you could do during a high inflation <laughs> environment. Uh, but there's a little bit of a fear that the things will slow down. So just any, any thoughts on uh, best book and, and uh, kind of uh, what your investors uh, do or prepare for the potential <laughs> challenges ahead. So we've, we've got a, another ebook on our website called recession resistant passive income. And it breaks down our whole investment thesis and strategy. It, it, look, the reality is this, you've got crazy high inflation. It, I don't think it was 6.8%. I think it was more like 11%. They, they it was 8.5 reported inflation in March was 8.5. Uh, practically, 8. I think it's like 15. That, that's, that's a more realistic number. Yeah, I, I agree with you 100%. They manipulate all the factors that go into that. So, you know, you can't trust them. But you've got crazy inflation, you've got a supply chain issue, you've got undersupplied housing, you've got, you know, potentially in you know, a World War Three, right? Big blacks one of it. We don't know what's going to happen there. Nobody knows what's going to happen, right? So we can't control what the events are, but how do we mitigate that? So mitigate it by investing. I don't think anyone should sit on the sidelines ever. I think you should just pivot into assets that are designed to be insulated against whatever's going to happen, right? So what does that look like? I mean, you really need to be in stuff that has a long runway. You know, I mentioned most of our stuff is underwritten at like a 66% LTV, 67%. Is that your um, cost to future value ratio is in the mid to high 60s? The, the loan to value. Yeah, the loan to value. Then you got your soft costs on top of that, like your, you know, your closing costs. What's your like all in cost relative to future value? I'm just, just curious. Sorry for interruption. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So right at about 75%, right? Everything all in. And we put all those numbers on the performance. We want to be able to take a nice 25% hit and still look really good, right? So what are those factors to consider? All right. So one of the reasons why we like Middle Tennessee is it's more affordable compared to the rest of the country, right? So what's going to happen during a market contraction? People still need a place to live. That need will never go away. People are just going to transition into more luxurious, more expensive living arrangements. 
into more affordable living arrangements. But they want to stay out of the class D and the class F, you know, your war zones. They don't want to get shots. So that's why we really like these, you know, these B class products. That's number one. We like Middle Tennessee. So people are still going to continue to flow there. Second thing is we're in a very high growth city. It's been like one of the top 10 fastest growing cities the past six years. So whenever you've got jobs moving somewhere, you've got some insulation there. That economy is still going to hang on and it's still not going to be affected by everything else. The other thing is the fact that it's a no income tax state. So you've got so many people moving their businesses here from states like California, New York. This is creating job growth, right? The city is actually giving businesses additional local tax incentives to move their businesses here, which is just fueling this demand for jobs. So all these things are fantastic. Another layer on top of it is the government. So you've got this huge migration from highly regulated states like California, who shut everything down during COVID, to states like Florida and Tennessee, where we did not shut everything down. We we're very business friendly. That is a new layer of risk that you have to consider now in the event that we get some other COVID type pandemic. That is another huge reason why there's some insulation here in Tennessee. We're not shutting everything down. You know, from a local level, you know, how quick are you getting in and out of these projects? You know, for land development stuff, we're typically in and out in 24 months or less. If it's spec infill, we're typically out in 10 months or less. What that does is it limits our exposure to the market. So we're not piling into these apartment complexes for five years and letting interest rate risk um, you know, compute into our deals, right? We want to be able to turn and burn these things. And so all these different layers with the low income taxes, the affordability, the friendly government, developer-friendly government, the vertical integration, handling everything from start to finish, getting in and out as quick as possible. All these things compound on each other to give you insulation. And so that's what I recommend people do is look for those product types, those investment vehicles that have multiple layers of insulation against whatever contraction is going to happen. We, we fully believe a contraction is going to happen. We build it into every single deal. And if we can't take a 25% hit in like a eight, nine, 10 month period, we don't do that deal, right? So we want that, that would be my advice on, on people when you're considering investment options and, and you've got some cash, but we've had world record stock market run, world record price appreciation in, in real estate, uh, and world record, I wouldn't say world record inflation, but inflation's reared its ugly head and it's pretty bad and, and you got cash burn in your account. Don't sit on the sidelines, invest it, but make sure you're looking for multiple layers of insulation, not just one or two. Yeah, that's that's great feedback. A lot, lot of less commentary. Yeah, I call it downside protection. You call it layers of insulation. Makes total sense. And yeah, uh, tax-friendly environment, uh, job growth, uh, inbound migration, all those trends support uh, the thesis of basically uh, kind of steady eddy growing market and um i didn't realize tennessee didn't have income income tax uh which is great I, that's that's actually uh i guess the few of the the, the few best states have that I, i'm in the worst state i'm in new york or in, well california is <laughs> the only thing that's worse so you can you can argue california and new york they're probably par but uh no income tax states like florida texas i guess tennessee falls into the same uh yeah. bucket so well, all good things must come to an end. So does this great uh, interview. I appreciate your wisdom. Thank you kindly. And um, yeah, folks, reach out. Uh, once again, Brian, final uh, uh, remind folks of your website. Uh, HPGcapital.net. So it's HarryBobGaryCapital.net. HPGcapital.net. Awesome. Thank you so much.
I appreciate you having me on. It was an honor. Good talking with you. Likewise. Thank you for listening to the Big Mike Fun Podcast. To receive your copy of Mike's How to Choose a Smart Real Estate Fun Book, head to BigMikeFun.com or visit Amazon and type Mike's slot name. Keep listening and keep investing Big Mike style. See you on the next episode.